If you would, please stand for me, stand with me for the reading of God's word, which comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Serena, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray before we look at God's word together. Father, we thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. May we never walk in darkness, just sign of your judgment, but walk in your light, a sign of your grace. Enable us, Lord, to see. Enable us to hear. Enable me to communicate your truth for your glory. For Christ's sake. Amen. Pentecost. Pentecost. One of the most misunderstood, twisted, torn, confused and abused terms in modern evangelicalism. With a cursory reading of Acts chapter 2, okay, i.e. Pentecost, one might conclude that this is a chapter on the Holy Spirit. Certain denominations have actually been formed by primarily looking to this chapter. Others cite Acts 2 so as to identify what a spirit-filled church, quote, end quote, looks like. 
Therefore, this chapter requires context. Both immediate context and a biblical framework from which we will work this morning in order to understand Pentecost. So allow me to summarize Acts 2. From the outset, it is as follows. Pentecost is the giving of the gift of the Spirit of Christ to speak of Christ. Pentecost is the ascended Lord Jesus Christ giving his spirit, the spirit of Christ, to speak about Christ. Christ pours out his spirit to enable his people to speak in his name. That is the reason we read elsewhere in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. 1 Peter 1, Romans chapter 8. The risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit who comes in his name. Are you with me? That's the introduction. Normally, they're 15 minutes long. (laughs) There you go. He sends the Spirit. That is, the one upon whom the Spirit came to rest at his baptism. In in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, who bore witness, said this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, I did not recognize him, okay, that is not until, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, John, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The one conceived by the Spirit was filled with the Spirit, was led by the Spirit to lay down his life for sinners. He was crucified, he died, he was raised on the third day and instructed his disciples before his ascension to wait in Jerusalem for what he had promised. Look back at verse 5. You will receive, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Friends, Acts chapter 2 is the final great act of Jesus Christ before the second coming. Acts chapter 2 is the final great act of Jesus Christ before his second coming. It is not a mystical experience. It is not a mystical experience. It is a missional experience. For the purpose of taking the gift of salvation to the entire human race. 
the dawning of this day, friends, was longed for, was anticipated. It was foretold in the, in, in the Old Testament by vision and prophecy, for which we will see this morning. This is the birth of the new covenant. This is the launch of the last days. This is the beginning of the end. This is the inauguration of the final countdown. This is the Normandy of World War II. This is D-Day that precedes V-Day. What's left? The glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, Acts 2, has been referred to as the rock dropped into the pond of the world, the ripples of which will extend to every corner of the globe and continue until the one who ascended descends in glory. Because upon his ascension, he was enthroned, receiving the promise of the ancient of days, that is the promise of God the Father, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and, and, and languages, tongues should serve him in everlasting dominion, his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. His kingdom begins in Israel. His kingdom comes by way of Israel. His kingdom comes from Israel to encompass the entire world. Amen? Amen, amen, amen? Pentecost represents an incredibly unique and unrepeatable event in redemptive history. Unique and what? Unrepeatable. And although, beloved, this is one of the most important days in redemptive history, unfortunately, as I said earlier, it is often confused and abused as many are terribly misled by the term Pentecost. So, this morning, three observations for our consideration concerning Pentecost. Number one, what was it? Number two, what did it produce? And number three, why did it happen? What was it? What did it produce? Why did it happen? So let's look first, what was it? That is, let's look at the immediate context. The occasion of gathering for these many people in the city of Jerusalem was Pentecost, meaning 50th. 50th. An event falling 50 days after Passover Sabbath. 50 days after Passover Sabbath, which was a Saturday, 50 days later makes this the Lord's Day, Sunday. Seven weeks plus one day. Seven times seven, 49 plus one day, 50 days, Sunday. Also known as the Feast of Harvest for the Jews. One of three required feasts 
for all Jewish males to pilgrimage in to the city of Jerusalem, also referred to as the celebration of first fruits. First fruits. This is much like our Feast of Thanksgiving. So it was an agricultural festival set apart to thank God for his goodness, for providing his goodness and provision, um, part of which was a harvest already gathered in part to thank him for that and then to continue to pray for his blessing on the remaining crop yet to be gathered in. First fruits. So it is no coincidence, beloved, that the advent of the Holy Spirit occurs on the day of Pentecost, first fruits. This will serve as the first fruits of an ingathering of souls. Peter will preach, 3,000 souls will be saved. That's the first fruits of a much greater harvest, a harvest that continues to this very day. This moment, right now, continues. A gradual gathering of this harvest spreading out worldwide begins right there, Pentecost. Now recall, if you will, another feast that Jesus attended, recorded in John chapter 7. He was attending the Feast of Booths, and I want you to look at what he said on the screen. John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is now glorified. And hence, the Spirit is given. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place. Verse 2. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, the 120, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Now, since there are no words to describe this miraculous occurrence, notice what Luke says. It was like. It was like something. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty wind. It doesn't say it was a mighty wind. It was a sound like a mighty wind. Rushing, violent. It filled the entire house where they, the 120 mentioned in verse 15, along with the apostles, were sitting. And divided tongues as of or like fire appeared to them resting upon them. Now, as you know, fire of course, is often a symbol of the presence of Almighty God. Presence of God. Where something here, like divided tongues as a fire, is seen resting upon each one of them, sitting there in that upper room on this day. 
Now, in both Old and New Testaments, the Holy Spirit is likened to the wind. The wind. Old Testament, ruach. New Testament, pneuma. From where we get pneumatic. The word pneuma refers to wind, breath, spirit. And speaking of wind, you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Friends, how did this happen? Now, was there someone stationed in a back room somewhere that, that gave them a special phrase? Just repeat this phrase over and over again, and something supernatural will take you over. Just repeat this, and mumble-jumble will happen. That's what they do today. Just keep repeating this phrase until your sane faculties give way to esoteric sensationalism. Is that what's happening here? No. The real Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke real languages. That's what tongues is. So there you have Pentecost. 50th day, Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of First Fruits. Second observation, what did it produce? What were these tongues? In verse 6, notice, they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own what? Not mumble-jumble. Language, not gibberish. They're not speaking gibberish. They're not speaking some angelic utterance. This is not a celestial proclamation. This is not ecstatic proclamation. This is very human proclamation of foreign languages unknown to them. That's what it produced. For what purpose? For the mission of the Great Commission. All power and authority has been given to me in heaven, above, and earth below. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have taught you, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. For the mission of the Great Commission, that's the purpose. Now, now I want you to notice verse 5. Now, we have a lot of theology, heavy theology we're going to cover today, so I need you to remain, like, super engaged. Amen? Verse 5, notice, this crowd was made up of God-fearing, what? Jews from where? Every nation under heaven. That's key for our understanding of this day later on this morning, okay? Very important. Notice, these are Jews of the dispersion from other places now, on this day, centralized in Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 1 and verse 4. 
do not depart from Jerusalem. Verse 8, chapter 1, you will receive power and will be my what? Witnesses where? In Jerusalem. My witnesses in Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. Those Jews heard these people from the upper room upon whom fiery tongues distributed themselves and rested on each one of them. In verse 6, hearing them speak in their own language, they were amazed. Notice how they respond. <sighs> Time out, cowboy. Are not these who are speaking Galileans? I.e., are these not those backwater people? This is a prejudice jab. As you know, Galileans had a distinct accent. The night Peter was warming himself at the fire, prior to denying our Lord Jesus Christ, Three times they accused him. You're one of his. And he says, I swear I'm not. And what they say, the crowd gathered around said, your accent gives you away. Here, God begins his last day ministry through lowly, weak, foolish vessels, Galileans. So you know this must be from God. Look around. Look around. He still does his work the same way. This is a room filled with flawed people. You're not culturally seasoned people. Most culturally seasoned people, most, not all, don't go to church. They think they know so much. We're not people with polished rhetoric. We're flawed people like these Galileans. So when we proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, you know this must be from God. Man can take no credit for this. You see this? So Pentecost, that's what it was. This is what occurred it produced people speaking languages that they had no knowledge of. Third, why was it? This is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. Notice, verse 8, how is it that each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors of Rome, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God, not gibberish. The mighty works of God in particular language unknown, languages unknown to them. 
So why did this happen? Well, we want to understand from a biblical context why this happened. And we have to go back to Genesis 10. In Genesis 10, you don't have to turn there. Genesis 10, we're given the table of nations. In Genesis 11, from which I read earlier, those nations gather together to build the tower, which would become known as Babel, erected so that these people, these nations with one language can carry out their heart's desire, attempting to make a name for themselves in the vain attempt to reach God, seeking immortality. Denying the word of God to spread out. God comes down. He cursed them. He confuses their language, scattering them around the earth taking away their ability to communicate. It's the reason, once again, there's so many languages in the world. This is a great judgment, friends. And I'm reminded of this every time I travel abroad. And if you've ever traveled abroad among a people who do not understand English, you understand how frightening and frustrating that can be. You can raise the volume all you want and slow down your speech because you speak English and they still don't understand. They do the same thing. They're Japanese, they slow down. They raise the volume. There's a barrier. Judgment. It's a great judgment. That's Genesis 12, 10, Table of Nations, the rebellion of those nations, Genesis 11. And then we get to Genesis 12. God calls from a pagan nation, Abram. And what does he tell him? Through you, Abram, who will be renamed Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world, scattered in chapter 11, all the nations of the world, I will call and I will bless a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. One point of Acts is that God came in judgment, the judgment he came with in chapter 11 of Genesis. Now, through the ultimate seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's reversing the curse, unifying their language, uh, that is, of God's people, to proclaim what? The mighty works of God, which is the? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of Acts. That's the reason. We're going to break it down even more than that. So this is a taste of what the new covenant age is all about, which is the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, carrying out the great commission to every tribe, tongue, and nation of people. And here... At its inception, the power of God was manifest to these disciples who were given, on this occasion, extraordinary ability to speak particular language, a language they didn't speak. Extraordinary, okay? Extraordinary. Not common. Hint. Hint. Now, that's not the only purpose for which Pentecost served. This is a double-edged sword. 
Pentecost serves as a double-edged sword. As the gospel spreads, Paul will inform us later on that one of the purposes of tongues was a sign of judgment to unbelieving Israel. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, look at it. Indeed, he will speak to this people, these people, who people, what people, these people, Jewish people, through stammering lips in a foreign tongue, he who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, here is repose, but they would not what? Listen. They would not listen. An act of judgment upon that generation of unbelieving Jews who did not believe their Messiah. So words, tongues, these people, these Jews would not understand, could not understand, sealed them in their unbelief. Now, Paul cites that passage of Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 14. First, the, the church of Corinth was prostituting the gifts. They were pretending to have gifts they didn't have, and they were drawing all this attention to themselves. Paul said this, in the law it is written, this is chapter 14, verse 21, 1 Corinthians. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of a stranger, of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So, okay, that is consequently, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, not for the church, but to unbelievers, specifically unbelieving Jews, Prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but for those who believe. That prophecy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your mind? Yeah, they will. Yes, they will. So if the Holy Spirit is being poured out to the Gentile nations, and that serves not only as a blessing to the many Jews who would believe, but also as a curse to particular unbelieving Jews. If that was a sign of the times, is that sign necessary today? No. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us tongues will what? Cease, it will come to an end. You don't hear of it after Acts, or 1 Corinthians chapter 14 ever again. Languages. Okay, so what's happening here in Acts 2? Friends, this is the inauguration of God's new what? Covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So a new covenant presupposes an old, Amen. Okay, now that old covenant was broken by Israel, who, un, not unlike you or me, have an innate rebellious tendency that inclines us, that inclined them away from the law, not towards it. When you cut across someone's lawn for weeks, you don't think much of it, 
at first there was probably a conscious sting in your mind. I probably shouldn't step on the grass. And one day you come by and there's a sign posted. It says, do not step on the grass. What are you tempted to do? Transgress the law. That's the rebellion of our hearts. The old covenant itself made no provision to empower the people to keep its demands. There's the law. There's no power to keep it. Are you with me? Now, the new covenant could not come until the first covenant was what? Fulfilled. There's only one who could possibly fulfill it. One person fulfilled its demands, and he ascended to heaven, and now he inaugurates a new epic of God dealing with human beings, and that is by way of the resident presence of his what? His spirit. Told you this is a lesson in theology. This is important. This is the word of God. The old covenant was inaugurated by what? The blood of a lamb. The first Passover, Exodus. Slaughter a lamb. Cover your door frames with the blood of the lamb. In my judgment, my death will pass over you. The new covenant was inaugurated by what? The blood of the lamb. The lamb. And at the last supper, that is the last Passover dinner ever, there is at the head of the table the Lamb of God. You don't hear about a lamb mentioned at that table because the Lamb of God was present. And what did he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So now, having ascended to his place of honor, the right hand of the Father, where all authority and power has been delegated to him, he sends the promised Holy Spirit. Remember what he said that night in the upper room? Last Supper? In John 14. Remember the, 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 the last night of Jesus' life consists of John 13 through 17. In John 14, he said this to his disciples, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. You know him because he abides with you and he will be, what? In you. What is God doing here at Pentecost? As promised, friends, he's rebuilding Israel. He's reconstituting Israel to function as his witness to the, the nations. That's what he's doing. That was their intended purpose from the beginning, to bear witness to the nations. Here's his new Israel. What do we see in Acts chapter 2? Jews being gathered from the north, south, east, and west. Every nation under what? Heaven. They're converging where? In Jerusalem, as promised in the Old Testament. This is God gathering exiles from every nation under heaven, restoring Israel, launching here his new Israel worldwide. That's beautiful. 
That might mess with some of your eschatology. Let me help you straighten it out. Ezekiel 36. Beginning in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Ezekiel, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, <clears throat> they defiled it by their ways and by their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they shed on the land because they had defiled it, defiled it with their idols, also scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the what? The lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. So not unlike Adam who was expelled from the Garden of Eden, God expels Israel. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, says the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And then nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then... I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from your, your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new what? Heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to do observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people. I will be your God. Moses ascended Mount Sinai. He came down with tablets of stone. Jesus ascends to the Mount of all mounts, heaven itself. He descends with what? The Spirit of God. Written where? on people's hearts. He's fulfilled it. He's here. So if you're anticipating a future millennium where a flood of Jews will come back into Jerusalem, gathered in from among the nations, taken into their own land to be filled with the Holy Spirit, so that, look down at verse 36, the nations that are left will know that I'm the Lord, if you're waiting for that time to be fulfilled, I have great news for you. Your waiting is over. It took place on Pentecost. Further insight, Ezekiel 37. Here, Israel is pictured as a graveyard, valley of death, dry, sun-scorched bones. Look at it. The hand of the Lord was upon me, 
He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. He set me down in the middle of the valley, full of bones. He caused me to pass among them, around and about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were dry. He said, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, the Lord, only you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. I will cause what? Breath. I will cause breath to enter that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on, you rise up. And notice verse seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a great what? Noise. Sound like the noise in Acts 2? A great noise. And behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bones. So they rise up. What's he say? Son of man, verse 11. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they will say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We're completely cut off. Verse 14. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And I will place you in your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Acts 2, fulfilled. He goes on in this chapter, and he talks about the Davidic kingdom. Notice what he says, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them. Friends, you know where the first David is? Long dead. David's dead when Ezekiel prophesies. He's in the grave. He's been in the grave. Who's he referring to? The greater David, Jesus, king of the kingdom. I will make, verse 26, a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary where I dwell in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Acts 2. Long before Ezekiel, you remember Moses, Numbers, chapter 11, Israel had been miraculously delivered from Egypt. God miraculously provided sustenance for them, manna from heaven. They started to complain and whine. Do you remember that? They don't want manna, they want meat. How many people prophesied in Israel at that time? One, Moses. God does a supernatural work, and he blesses and dispenses his spirit to 70 others so that they all prophesy, making 71. Moses' longtime assistant, Joshua, comes to Moses, and he cries out, My Lord Moses, stop them from prophesying. What these people are doing, stop them. Moses said, Are you jealous for my sake? Oh, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put his spirit on them all. 
The 70 prophesied, but never did again. Here, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends. Back in Numbers, those 70, what was their gift of prophecy? What was it to enable them to do? To make verbal proclamation. Acts 2, Moses' wish has come true. All God's people have the Spirit. What's our job? What's our role? What's our call? We're a kingdom of what? Priests. We're a royal priesthood. We are to proclaim the great works of God through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what a Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled church is all about. You hear what I'm saying, beloved? So allow me to be a bit polemical for a moment. Oftentimes, Reformed churches get a bad rap with regard to the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced this? Which is very unfair and incredibly ignorant on behalf of our accusers. People have visited here, and they'll leave, and they'll say, well, what'd you think? Well, I liked it. I mean, the teaching's good. You know, it's pretty deep, blah, 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 but it's just a little too much Bible. No joke. You know, if they would just liven up a bit and be, you know, spirit-filled, okay, assuming that that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, just whipped up a little bit, assuming that that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Question. Who do you suppose is considered the theologian of the Holy Spirit throughout church history? John Calvin. John Calvin. Who do you suppose wrote the largest works in the English language on the Holy Spirit? It's not Pentecostals. It's not the Assemblies of God. It's not Charismatics. It's the Reformed Church. John Owen and Thomas Goodwin have penned the greatest works on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in its clearest and most concise, precise form. What is the sign of the Holy Spirit who is dynamically involved by way of his presence in the church? That is, what's the sign of the Holy Spirit being energetically present among God's people? Is it speaking gibberish? No. Is it bouncing up and down or running all around? No. Is it the style of music that makes you feel giddy, tingly, or flushed? No. Is it performing supposed miracles? What about the heretical act of slaying people in the spirit where people fall backwards? Is it that? No. By the way, the only people in the New Testament who fall backwards are the enemies of Christ. It's what we see in Acts. You want to know what a spirit-filled church is? It's right here what we see. People boldly speaking of Jesus Christ. Right here. So let's, let, let, let's ask a question. How, how did Jesus define the work and power of the Spirit? Let's look at it. John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, paraclete, Holy Spirit, 
whom I will send to you from the Father. That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will what? He'll testify of me. And you will testify also about me, having been with me. John 16, verse 13. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, this is the same night, upper room, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, says Jesus. He will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit, beloved, declares and proclaims not himself, not Israel, not a land, not some future temple, not some two-covenant plan, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. No. Christ, the true Israel of Scripture, the Holy Spirit testifies of him. He's fulfilled it all. Every Old Testament promise finds its fulfillment in the Christ, the King. That's a Holy Spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-empowered, God-glorifying church and ministry. They declare Christ. Period. The only way to know that the Holy Spirit is present and active in the church is that Christ is preached, he's read about, he's sung about, He's prayed to, and he's prayed about. That's a spirit-filled church. Any so-called church that focuses on the Holy Spirit is not a Holy Spirit-filled, led church. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Come on, somebody. Next time when Peter preaches, we read that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. What does he do? Jump up and down like a lunatic? No, he preaches Christ. Spirit-filled, spirit-empowered. So God, friends, is declaring the gospel of his son this very moment around this world as we sit here in little San Diego and PHC Church in this nice little building, Christ is being preached like he is here around the world, many languages, one message. Spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, then they're preaching Christ, the good news and forgiveness and freedom and new life in Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're not in Christ, God's condemnation is upon you. Bad news. Here's the good. Jesus came to earth as a man and did what you could never do, perfectly fulfill God's covenant. Perfect obedience. In your place, condemned he stood, laid down his life, raised up the third day. He's ascended to heaven, and he descends by way of the Holy Spirit, and if he's moving in your life, bringing you to the place of realizing you're guilty and condemned before God, and you fall on your face and cry out for mercy, he'll save you right here, right now. You'll be covered by the blood of the Lamb. And when God looks at you, he'll see you as he sees his son. Perfect, holy, righteous. That's the good news. Repent, believe, and you'll be saved. Religion's not going to save you. 
You think you're a good person. That's not going to save you. Good compared to who? The best, Christ. You can't do it. You're doomed. Come to Christ. You'll be saved. So here we go to wrap up. On this day was an extraordinary ability to speak languages never before known to these people in that upper room. That was a miracle prophesied long ago, specifically designed to show that Christ has been enthroned to people, through people, I should say, who now declare his name. Those are the mighty works of God, verse 11. Fulfilled, Christ. Verse 12. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others were mocking. Ah, they're all drunk. They're filled with new wine, sweet wine. Friends, that's another sign of God's judgment right there. Grace comes to some, judgment comes to others. They mock in darkness the things of God. From out of their darkness, they mock. They're all filled with new wine. Peter has an answer for that next time. Yet even amidst this great miracle, beloved, look it, there are mockers reminding us this, of this. It doesn't matter what God does. He could speak from heaven. And here, the human heart left to itself hates God. And they will take any miracle like this, any piece of evidence for God, and they'll twist it and they'll pervert it. It's not of God. This is the reason you must be wise, beloved, in trying to prove the existence of God. That's not your job. Your role, my role, is the preaching of man's sin and the need for God's grace found only in Jesus Christ who was crucified on a Roman cross, dead, buried, raised up the third day, and he's coming in glory and judgment. Repent and believe. That's our message. That's what they were enabled to do. That's what Acts 2 is all about. Now, do we make the best of every opportunity? Do you? I don't, unfortunately. I failed many times. Do we even pray for opportunities? This is where we should start. Do you pray for opportunities to bear witness of Jesus Christ, to find ways to proclaim the person and work of Christ, praying for wisdom and boldness, not one without the other, praying for opportunities and then to do so by the power of God, the Spirit of God, as long as he may tarry. Let us start there, amen. Let us start there. So Pentecost shows us, done in two minutes. You got all this theology, by the way? You need to go study this, beloved. Don't take my word for it. Take it home. Go study it. Pentecost, number one, shows us God is forever faithful. He fulfills his promises. Number two, the gospel is for all nations. Springboard was Israel. Springboard was Jerusalem. To the utter ends of the earth. Number three, 
the risen, ascended Lord Jesus is presently active and powerfully establishing, building, caring for his church. He promised, I will be with you until the end of the age. What age? The kingdom age. This is the kingdom age. Nothing left to happen but the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ who ascended. This is it. So this is our story. And the Lord wants us to be in it. Many Christians are caught up in other things. Some materialism. Others, very poor doctrine that makes Pentecost and the Pentecost experience all about them. And the gifts God's given me. And then when you hear the gifts, it's just radical nonsense. Or they say, I have the gift of the apostles. They'll say they have particular gifts. And I go, wait a minute. When I read the Bible, the Bible calls the gifts that you supposedly have signs of an apostle, which were signs for an apostle. Where are they? They're dead and made alive in Christ. They're home. (laughs) There are no more. Acts 2 is for us today in proclaiming Christ. That's what it's all about. Gift of the Holy Spirit is to speak of Christ. So may the same Holy Spirit, beloved, empower our worship, empower our witness, our mission, our evangelism, all to declare the name above all names, Jesus, the Christ, the royal anointed one, the only begotten son of God, who's coming back again. Real soon. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Pentecost. Help us to understand the glorious truth for which we have heard today. For his name, amen.